The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. It's a basic human right to have the right to speak about your experience. I find it incomprehensible that I'm even having to argue the point that it is morally incorrect to have a legally enforceable contract that silences anybody about any form of wrongdoing, criminal or otherwise. This isn't just about behaviour. I'm not just talking about sexual harassment. This is also about malpractice, faulty products. It covers everything. Hello, everybody. I'm Becky Anderson, and welcome to another episode of The Hearing. And this episode is all about non-disclosure agreements. As most of you will know or remember, non-disclosure agreements started out as a way for two companies who were interested in doing a business deal to share confidential information before a sort of a full fat contract was signed between them. So it was a way of protecting confidential information between parties who had a real vested interest in sharing it to try and come to some sort of deal or transaction. But we're going to talk today about where non-disclosure agreements have ended up because after Harvey Weinstein and similar examples that have been coming through the media in the last two years, we have started to see non-disclosure agreements being used in a very different way. To help me look at that, today's guest is Zelda Perkins. She is the co-founder of Can't Buy My Silence. Hello, Zelda. Can you tell us from your personal experience how non-disclosure agreements are being used today? Sure. Hello. Hi. Um, Well, I obviously came across non-disclosure agreements um, um, about 30 years ago when I was um, forced to sign one whilst um, working for Harvey Weinstein. Um, it was not called a non-disclosure agreement. It was just meant to be a damages uh, settlement agreement. Um, and within that, there clearly became some very, very, very onerous non-disclosure clauses Um, But that agreement we were using to also try and stop Weinstein's behaviour. So it felt like a a quid pro quo. Um, And for us, for myself particularly, uh, I felt that my silence was what I was paying to have Harvey Weinstein's behaviour stopped. Right. The reality, (laughs) I was only 23 at the time. I had never had any legal experience. I'd never even sat in a room with a lawyer before. Um, But the reality, uh, obviously, was that um, our our clauses, we upheld our confidentiality clauses, but Weinstein did not uphold any of the um, clauses within the agreement that would have stopped and curtailed his behaviour. And this is because of the disparity of arms and the disparity of power, which there generally is in 100% of cases of what have now been generally termed non-disclosure agreements is is a very major issue. You have disparity of power between the two individuals and you have disparity of power between the, the two legal representatives. And that was very clear during my experience. Um, When I broke my agreement in 2017, I did this very specifically, not just because I wanted to highlight um, Weinstein's behaviour, but actually for me, what was more important 
was to highlight the fact that it was the system that was enabling and enables people like Weinstein, people in power, to abuse their position of power. And for me, when I was 24, it was a heartbreaking experience to sit in a room with lawyers. On my own side, I had a very erudite counsel um, and nobody on either side of the table at any point suggested to myself or my colleague that signing an agreement that said that I had to use my best endeavours not to aid the police, not to speak to a therapist, not to speak to the HMRC. No one at any point suggested that those clauses were empty threat and they were actually unenforceable. Now, to me, that doesn't necessarily show bad lawyering. It shows lack of regulatory support and guidance. And that has become even clearer since I started this battle. So in 2017, when I broke my agreement, I had hoped that um, I would get legal support. And I thought that the legal industry would be very keen to also highlight that there was this terrible ethical, moral problem. (laughs) Um, And I was enraged and again completely broken by the fact that I was essentially stonewalled by all the top law firms that I approached in London thinking that they might want to fight the good fight with me. Um, and in fact I have a I have an email uh, that I had sight of from a senior partner at um, a firm I won't mention uh, which said It was an internal email and it said, we would not touch this woman with a barge pole because she is questioning the enforceability of agreements that we have with all our high net worth individual celebrity and important clients. This was the point that I broke my NDA because I realized that this was not just about one very bad, egregious NDA with Harvey Weinstein standing behind it. This was about an entire system, an epidemic of lazy lawyering, actually, um, where people have, I think, this has come particularly from the States, which is, you know, which uses agreements much more. And in fact, the non-disclosure clauses and agreements that we see mostly are cut and pasted from the States and the very, very stringent IP NDAs did really get born in Silicon Valley in the 80s. Um, And they have now become a go-to normal standard habit in UK settlements of all sorts. Mm. Which is a far cry, really, from two people trying to do a business deal, business to business, both of whom have a parity of bargaining power, trying to make sure that, um, that, that that deal doesn't leak and damage their interests, their business interests. Um, I think this move from two business interests, both of whom are sophisticated, I suppose we would call them sophisticated users of legal services, um, entering into this sort of thing at arm's length, is very different from where we are with the use of it in employment cases, cases like yours. Um I wondered if you could talk more about the damaging effects of that expansion of NDA use and how that's directly impacts individuals. And one of the things that I I 
I wanted to pick up on that you mentioned that you were not allowed to do was speak to a therapist. And, and that seems to me deeply troubling. Yeah. Um, as you say, it is entirely appropriate for NDAs to be used, confidentiality to be used around IP and trade secrets. Since um, I broke my NDA, I have obviously come into contact with hundreds, if not thousands, of people who um, feel that they have been coerced or pushed into signing NDAs, and as I say, generally in, in a perfectly reasonable settlement damage, damages agreement. Um, and I think for me, what has made me, what made me start Can't Buy My Silence was the sort of devastating realisation of the long-term impact that having your voice taken away and not being able to own your trauma um, can do. This was first made very clear to me when I uh, took part in a Bayes um, public consultation and looking into the misuse of NDAs, which was a great step, and rose out of the two select committee inquiries into the misuse of NDAs. Um, and sitting at that table were a complete cross-section of society. There was a woman there from a very small women's charity. There was a lawyer from a energy company. There was a civil servant. There was a teacher. There was a complete cross-section. And there was one common denominator. Every single person in that room had not only lost their career through having signed an NDA, they also lost had a huge mental health impact and physical health impacts and I think I'd never really connected the two quite so much mm. and I think this is very co common particularly in trauma response all of these people not only I mean you know they were financially mentally physically and often lost relationships within their own families and friends because they couldn't speak to anybody and I don't think you really understand the impact of that until way after you've signed. And I also don't believe that any lawyer understands that. And why should they? Mm. <laughs> you know, they think, you know, you look at an HR department or a, or, or, or a lawyer negotiating um, an NDA and they genuinely think they're offering a panacea. They think yes. they are offering a solution. You get paid some money, you get given a good reference, you get to move on and forget all about it. That's actually bullshit. And the reality is that, you know, you are generally being put under very high pressure, being put into a very tight time frame, being told that if you don't sign, you won't get your settlement, which, mm. by the way, has nothing to do with you giving confidentiality. You are due a settlement, a damages payment. There are lots of situations where in in work you might it might be a he said she said or a he said he said or there is no no ability to prove but there has been a disagreement that cannot be resolved and that is perfectly reasonable to resolve with a settlement and you are it's absolutely fine for you to get money for that settlement that's what a settlement agreement is for a settlement agreement is not to not talk about what happened that's not what that money is for. But somewhere along the line, this has become completely merged. And now all lawyers, it appears, seem to advise that you will not get your settlement agreement, which you are due, if you do not give full confidentiality. One of the other huge arguments that comes up is that 
The victims need confidentiality. These agreements protect the victim. Again, this is an absolute fallacy. You do not need a two-way confidentiality agreement to protect the victim. You need one-sided confidentiality. Now, this is where the other huge part of the impact of signing an NDA comes into play, which is the shame and the responsibility that somebody who signs some of these agreements feel. If you are aware that there is an abusive personality in your office, in your place of work, and you end up in a situation where you sign something that says that you will never speak about this, you're then in a position where you cannot warn anybody, you cannot tell anybody, and you become culpable and feel shame and responsibility for the continued abuse that I'm afraid generally continues. As you're speaking, I suppose, one of the things that I want to do is to reassure anybody in that situation that you are not to blame in the sense that you're not the perpetrator of that behaviour and it doesn't lie on your shoulders. And I would just want to kind of, anybody listening to this, I want them to kind of hear that message um, uh, because I feel very strongly that we should not be taking on responsibility for the behaviour of others. However, I completely acknowledge your point that regardless of the situation, regardless of whether that behaviour is down to you or not, and it is not, um, that there is absolutely, I can imagine, a burden of feeling like you were complicit, of feeling like that other people would have been saved but for you because you took the money and didn't speak up and signed the agreement. And I can completely understand that there would be a very heavy mental burden on people as a result of that. I wanted to move slightly um, into some aligned space um, and talk about, is there a human rights abuse here? Are NDAs being used consciously or more likely unconsciously to breach people's human rights, do you think? I believe so, yes. I think it's a basic human right to um, have the right to speak about your experience. And I think I, I find it incomprehensible that I'm even having to argue the point that it is morally incorrect to have a legally enforceable contract that silences anybody about any form of wrongdoing, um, criminal or otherwise. Because I this isn't just about behavior. You know, this is also about malpractice, faulty products. It covers everything. You know, I'm not just talking about sexual harassment. Um, and unfortunately, well, not unfortunately, but that is the subject that it seems to rest in. Um, and I think also in a way that's a very easy subject for people or lawyers particularly to argue the unproven accusation, he said, she said, he said, he said, argument. No, you're right. I've absolutely seen this has been used in the case of shutting up whistleblowers um, as well. Um, and I, I, can I can absolutely see why it's cases of sexual harassment and that make the headlines. Um, but the scope of this is, is so much wider than that. And thinking back, to my own, yeah, just thinking back to my own time as a lawyer, any sort of any hint that you were trying to suppress whistleblowing in certain circumstances should be the largest red flag available, but consciously using an NDA deliberately to suppress whistleblowing. I mean, that takes us, I think that, that very neat segue actually takes us into part of what I wanted to discuss, which, which I think you've touched on already is, I want to talk about the lawyers making these agreements. You know, I'm a lawyer myself. And when I was reading about this and thinking about this and, and looking over your excellent website, I think the thing that kind of stood out to me immediately was, hang on a minute here. 
lawyers are in a really interesting position because we're not just business people making an agreement. Anybody who is admitted to the roles as a solicitor or to the bar as a barrister um, signs up to the, the fact they have a duty to the court. And what does that mean? You know, I mean, and I think part of the reason I wanted to talk about that is firstly, I think that a lot of lawyers um, take that as a source of pride, actually, that we do something which goes beyond just doing business deals. We are people who have a duty to the court and it's a part of our identity, actually, as professionals. Um but, but what does that really mean for anybody who isn't the sort of solicitor who stands up on a daily basis in front of the court defending people? Uh, and that's where it gets very hazy, because then it becomes something where you feel a sense of identity and a sense of pride in it, but you're never really called on it. You never really have to do anything which um, requires you to put the duty to the court and the duty to the rule of law above your client's interests. And I, I did a little bit of research, actually, on this, because oh. I know that the um, Solicitors Regulation Authority, the principles and our professional conduct rules do change. And I just wanted to kind of r remind myself of what the most up-to-date versions were. And this is where, you know, my, it started to get more interesting. So, of course, the, the principle number one, um, that this provides that you will act as a solicitor, you will act in a way that upholds the constitutional principle of the rule of law and the proper administration of justice, which is a very interesting phrase, I think. Um, and then, of course, as solicitors, we also have that duty to act in the best interests of our client. But principle seven says that the duty to act in a client's interests and the duty to the court, should they come into conflict, um, Duty of the, the court takes precedence. The duty of the court <laughs> takes precedence. And the reason I wanted to be very, very loyally in this situation and, and set out those principles before I make my next point is that where you as a solicitor are using NDAs on behalf of a client to cover up actual crimes, and obviously we've seen very high profile cases where the perpetrators of the crimes covered by NDAs um, went to prison for them, such as Harvey Weinstein, as you mentioned, um, I think there's a real question here. And I, I am waiting for the lawyers listening to this to, to jump on me and say, well, innocent until proven guilty, we didn't know there was an actual crime there. And I would argue that the proper administration of justice means that if you are habitually using NDAs to cover up the same behaviour again and again and again, then that is something which should be turned over to the court and the police, potentially. The Hearing On the outside, you're a lawyer, calm and cool, but inside there's a passion to perform, a drive to be absolutely on your game. You prepare hour after hour, day after day, in the pursuit of excellence, relying on superior resources, serious preparation, and total confidence. That's the advantage we give you. Be your best with Thomson Reuters Practical Law. I would argue that the proper administration of justice means that if you are habitually using NDAs to cover up the same behaviour again and again and again, then that is something which should be turned over to the court and the police, potentially. Now... I want your views on that. <laughs> so many, so many different <laughs> So ways. many views. Give me all your views. I want to hear them. Well, first of all, um, in the situation where you're signing an NDA, you are not in a court situation. So innocent when proven guilty, you are not holding things to a criminal standard. 
But what also goes with that is that 99.9% of the victim in this situation or the accuser in this situation, they have no interest in going to the press. This is not about going to the press. This is just being able to speak to the appropriate people, particularly when it's around situations of sexual harassment or assault or bullying, because it's a very complex area, very vulnerable, psychologically complex area. Um, and actually what happens is you end up being re-abused by that contract time after time after time because you can't just talk to your husband or your wife or your therapist or your brother or whoever it is that you need to talk to or a colleague to say, don't go into the photocopying room with Pete or Jane or whoever it is. <laughs> um, but uh, secondly, I think this whole issue of the duty to the court and, you know, your duty to, you know, to, to, for your client is that, you know, you're taught at law school, I believe, <laughs> to be pretty adversarial. And oh, I think yes. this is where there's a huge, there's a huge dichotomy. It's very difficult because what I've, what I've very much seen in the situations that I've been in and certainly at looking at NDAs and certainly looking at the way they're procured, which is also a, a real issue, how lawyers behave in these situations, is that the moment you trigger that adversarial behaviour and that motivation, that adversarial behaviour in a lawyer, then you've lost. Because the desire to win, the motivation to win for your client takes over from your ethical boundaries. And I can see it like a massive, you know, bright yellow highlighter pen through nearly every single NDA that I'm shown and through the experiences of all the men and women who come to me who um, have gone through this experience. Um, and this is something that, again, brings me back time and time again to the regulators. And I know that the regulators shy away desperately from being pres prescriptive, and I understand that. But, and, and you, know, and, uh, you know, I went through a very long and pretty gruelling investigation with the SRA over my own personal case, um, and even at that time, I mean, so this was still in, this was 2018, I remember saying to them, can you not just change your guidance? Because the guidance is the same as it was in 1998 when I signed this agreement, as it is today. And they said, oh, well, we've put out a warning notice, and they've put out three more since then. And I said, yeah, I, that's great. And that started the conversation, and it means that lawyers are being a bit more careful. But ultimately, nothing has changed. The only thing that has changed in law since the time that I signed my agreement is the whistleblowing protections. Um, and again, I think for most people, they don't understand their rights as a whistleblower. And most people don't understand really about protected disclosures, which is incredibly important. Again, I was mm -hmm. never given any information about protected disclosures, even when I was asking legal advice in 2017 about breaking my agreement to my own lawyers, the lawyers who had sat beside me and held the pen for me to sign that agreement. And I went to them and I said, I really need to break this agreement now. They didn't even at that point suggest that maybe there was a way forward through, you know, protected disclosures. But I think this, this, the, the ethical line, it's very hard for uh, solicitors and, uh, you know, practicing lawyers to have to take that, that 
make that moral decision, or they're clearly finding it very difficult between the adversarial win mentality and their duty to the ethics and the ethics of of, of, the, of court and of justice. Um, and I mean, if you look at other countries, even in Europe, I mean, I believe Spain has pretty good law, has pretty good guidance on this. But you don't have to be prescriptive. But I think it is very clear. Um, and I think the SRA have, have tried to do this. The Law Society's guidance is, is pretty pathetic, I have to say. Um, but if the, if the regulators supported their members, supported them to make the right decisions, I think it would, be, it would change mm. immediately. Yes, I, I, I absolutely take your point that as lawyers, we completely get caught up in um, the thrill of getting the best deal for our client and being terribly clever about how many brilliantly worded exemptions we might have put into an agreement or or what the agreement covers and how brilliantly broadly and yet specifically we've drafted it and I've seen it time and time again and I've experienced it myself that thrill of I'm so brilliant. Absolutely. I'm so clever. Yeah. I I thought of putting the therapist exemption in, and I bet nobody <laughs> else has thought of that. How jolly! What a jolly, brilliant job I've done. And then that that sort of that disconnect between stopping and thinking. Hang on a minute. Have I just enabled a human rights abuse? Have I just stopped a police investigation in its tracks and potentially covered up evidence? Have I enabled those things? Um, and And, you are absolutely right can I just make a point with that you know no lawyer will have done those things because you are all very very clever and you know the letter of the law so my agreement doesn't say you can't speak to a police officer the point is is when I left that room when your client leaves that room when they are shown that contract what are they left believing yes I was made to believe very clearly or I was left believing that if I broke that agreement, I would go to jail. Not only would the money be clawed back, but I believed that I would be breaking the law. Nobody told me Nobody explained to you that it was only a civil agreement. Nobody told me That is incredible. Well, I'm sure it was explained to me, but if somebody said to me it's only a civil agreement, I would have gone, okay, it's only a civil agreement. I'm 24, I've just gone through, through the night with no, you know, with no food, not being allowed pen and paper, being escorted to the loo, being made to feel like a criminal, not really able to process, you know, some of the language that for lawyers is, is, is normal and clear. And again, I'm not necessarily blaming the individual lawyers. And I'm, and I know that, (laughs) I know that lawyers will, will point, would point academically to the, to the language in my agreement and say, well, actually, none of this was actually enforceable. And it didn't actually mean that. It may have given the impression. And, and this actually brings me to another question that um, I'm more and more beginning to wonder. And this is just a question for, for, all, for, for, for all lawyers. What actually is the function and point of, of legalese, legal language? Mm. Well, it's a good question. What is it except to obfuscate from a normal human being, actually? And we talk a lot in the legal profession, certainly in England um, and, and the UK generally, we talk a lot about plain English drafting, but we also forget that there are many defined terms of art, as we like to think of them, 
as the rest of the world calls them, jargon, um, which crop up in law, in legal agreements all the time, which we fail to see because we've been dealing with them for 10 years or more. Yeah. We've learnt them since law school. We've learnt them since we did our law degrees. That you know, Things like tort, damages, loss, these have very specific meanings. Um, and we fail to recognise, I think, that that other people don't see that. They think that these words have a natural meaning. Instead, they have a meaning which is established by case law, a meaning which is established by precedent and regulation. Yeah. And and actually, you know, I'm I'm sure there's 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 a wonderful historical reason and growth of of, of legal language. And you know, I'm a huge traditionalist, and I love sort of ceremony and and, and all of that. But in a situation like this, I see the legal language as actually being. A, a massive barrier and problem and actually it goes both ways because again I don't believe that the solicitor I had sitting beside me was trying to make it difficult for me to understand the agreement they were you know their blood was up they were in a massive fight um, they got what they thought was an incredible deal and they still stand by that because they did they got they got um, restrictions in that agreement that they've never seen or been able to get before or since. But that's not the point. This is about human life. This is about this is about morals, and it is about the effect that it has on a human being. It is not an academic um, process. It is not just a business transaction. And as the kind of the tool, the conduit of that that agreement, as a lawyer, you have a huge responsibility to look at the consequences. And I think I think this is one of the other things um, that I that I think is really important for for practicing lawyers to be given more exposure to, and that is understanding the experience of their clients. Um, and not, as you say, getting carried away with the the excitement of the of the kind of academic thrill of of uh, adversarial thrill of fighting with a with with another another lawyer. Um, and this again brings you back to the whole duty of the court. You know that that is that is the root. That's the the foundation of of why every person who has trained to be a lawyer is practicing. You know, I mean, as a doctor, you take a Hippocratic oath. Um, it's a to me the duty duty to the court is 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 a similar thing. So we've discussed in detail um, a lot about these NDAs and the, the the position of lawyers in drafting them and and negotiating them and the adversarial system around that. Um, I really like to hear a bit more from you around the organisation you co-founded can't buy my silence uh, and, and what it is that you're doing I think we've kind of we've got a little bit of an idea of what you're doing but I would like to hear some a lot a, a lot more about that from you if that's okay yeah no sure um well I, I think it's clear where, where it where it stemmed from and uh, I I think I was very lucky in that the groundswell of me too protected me in terms of um any legal repercussions with me breaking my non-disclosure agreement. 
and it also brought the story to the fore and uh, gave me a platform to really be able to highlight this issue. And I think, as I mentioned, there were two select committee inquiries, Hub of the Women's mm. Equalities Select Committee in, um, uh, back in eight, 2018 and 2019. Um, and then there was a government department public consultation and um, recommendations were made to the government and things looked really hopeful that there was going to be change. The SRA were, you know, throwing <laughs> warning notices left, right and centre. And there seemed to be a lot of impetus behind um, doing something about this. Because to me, the most important thing is that regulation and legislation are changed. Because otherwise, nothing is going to change. During lockdown, it became very apparent to me that without the kind of continued amplification of Me Too and the amount of reporting that we had got, which seemed to lead everyone to believe that there had been a change, that uh, it was key that I continue doing this work. Um, and that means public education. It means legal education. Um, it means giving a platform to people to share their experience because of the nature of NDAs. There is almost zero data on them, which is a big problem when you're trying to, to you know, argue through a legislative change or anything to, with regulators as well. Um, and we've been absolutely blown away by the speed of and willingness of change in pretty much every country other than the UK, <laughs> um, and also by the um, enormous amount of contributions we've had from testimonies from people who have signed NDAs, which has given us a, a huge insight. But as I think I said earlier, there's a, a common denominator that runs very strongly through them. And actually, if you look through some of the testimonies on the website, it is, it's pretty distressing reading. Yes, absolutely. Uh, one one question I wanted to ask you is that obviously uh, I completely take your point that it is hard to see the scale of the problem because the whole point of an NDA is that these things are not disclosed and that it is um, that they are disclosed in the exception more than the rule. Uh, it's not everybody that get, can get their MP to ask a question in the Houses of Parliament to yeah. uh, use the freedom of the Houses of Parliament to side the House of Commons in order to sidestep that. Um, and so I just wanted to get kind of a sense for you that if you could give a sense to our listeners of how many people have you got coming to you to say, this is the problem, I've signed this NDA, this is the impact it's had on me. What, what do you estimate the scale of the problem is from the, the people you see coming to you? Because of the very nature of NDAs, um, it is very hard to judge the scale. We have a fantastic data partner on our website who's done some incredible work and actually there's some very good concrete data on there um, and um, also we've been working with a senator in Ireland um, and, and senators in Canada um, where we have legislation that has gone through and is going through and both um, the Irish government did a big study um, which is very very sobering reading um, and as have a couple of the provinces in Canada um, now, the legislation that um, we were part consulted on and helped create in Ireland um, 
is actually the strongest NDA legislation that I've seen out there currently. Uh, there's a lot of states in the in America that have about about eighteen or twenty now that have got much firmer um, non-disclosure agreement legislation, but it tends to always move around sexual harassment. Um, but one of the things, uh, I mean, the bill that we were part of part of writing that's uh, at its last committee stage in Ireland and no government opposition, full cross-party support, so I believe will be through by the end of this year. That bill has been modelled in Canada. In one province, it's already been enacted into law, which is unbelievably exciting. Prince Edward Island, it's a very small province, hence the ability to get it through fast. Um, it's, it's been tabled in two other provinces and it's at its second reading in Manitoba. Um, and it's about to go into, to be tabled into its first reading in Nova Scotia. But one of the things that we've made very clear in those bills are that the victim has the ability to have confidentiality. The victim has the yes. ability to choose, to have the power in their hands to choose confidentiality. But you cannot have confidentiality for a perpetrator when it's around any protected forms. So I think, you know, there are seven or eight. Um, so, you know, I think because the argument that we're always coming up against is, is this one, it's impractical and two, it's for the, it's all for the victim. Um, but, uh, Victoria and Australia are also modeling on this bill. Um, and you may also be aware that Gretchen Carlson, who was the Roger Ailes, uh, she was the Fox anchor newswoman who brought Roger Ailes down. She's doing incredible work in the States with her campaign, Lift Our Voices. They've now managed to stop forced arbitration. They've had that put it, got into federal law and they now are um, at, passed in the Senate their NDA bill. Again, it's only around sexual harassment, but it's a start. Um, and I just think it shows that globally there is, there is a realisation that arguing for for a legally enforceable agreement that is basically hiding iniquity is 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 implausible mm. and actually it makes me a bit sad that we're so slow we're being so slow in in England to to take this forward particularly as in a way I feel like I was the one who was shouting the loudest about this being an issue of law not an issue of sexual predators no, it's a, uh, so many thoughts come up as as you're speaking. I think that the first thing, the first thought that of course leapt into my mind is that the people who do know the scale of this problem are the people who are drafting the NDAs, the law firms that are habitually writing these for their big name clients. And and I want to come back to this point because I think it's quite critical for lawyers to consider and think about in the context of the, your duty to the court. Yes, um, there is a duty. Um, to that, that someone is innocent until proven guilty. But does that extend to writing 20, 30 NDAs covering up the same behaviour again and again and again? At what point does that become obstruction of justice? Several steps removed from telling the police a lie or refusing to talk to the police. Or having to warn the perpetrator before you speak to the police. Or having to warn the perpetrator, yes. But again and again and again, multiple times over, and I'll go back to Harvey Weinstein because it was a case that was prosecuted successfully. And the, it was a case where there were multiple instances of 
people who had suffered, who had had NDAs, and then that behaviour was turned out and found out to be criminal behaviour. Um, and so those NDAs, whether the lawyers knew it at the point at which they were drafting them or not, were aiding and abetting criminal behaviour to continue. Um, I think there's some really interesting thoughts there. I think I'd be very interested for some of the large law firms to maybe do a bit of self-reflection and say, well, we know how many of these have we done. Yeah. Do we need to do a look at ourselves internally? Um, Should we be considering that whilst this is ubiquitous in the market and this is commonplace... Yes, because that's and the whilst, It's yes. standard. And I'm like, that doesn't mean it's right. <laughs> I, I would argue that it doesn't mean that it is in accordance with the SRA's principles just because it yeah. is standard. Exactly. Um, and I think that there is some very interesting analysis to be done on whether this is breaching those principles, whether this is breaching, aiding and abetting in the breaching of human rights. I think that not just the the initial impetus for why the NDA came about for the what what the perpetrator might have done but the fact of the NDA itself Absolutely. is the fact of it existing a breach of human rights and I think that as lawyers whilst having that legislation would give necessary clarity and it would stop it in its tracks immediately because lawyers would suddenly be have to say to all of their clients we know we did that last year we cannot do it this year because it is illegal under this new regulation I think that there is something on lawyers to say, do we need to have a look in the mirror here? Are we doing something which is not only ethically grey, but is actually prohibited under the under an interpretation of the SRA yep. guidance as it currently stands? Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think the SRA, SRA guidance is, is very clear, but it's not clear enough, clearly, because academically, I mean, also it may just be to do with the fact that the SRA are not very powerful. Um, And again, my experience of dealing with the SRA and going through an investigation and asking them to hold my own lawyers to account, my own lawyers just pushed back. They just pushed back. They They did not follow the advisory of the SRA and in fact were very aggressive with me and told me that if I wanted my files, I had to take them to the High Court. You know, there are battles that are worth fighting and those that aren't. I'm more interested in trying to stop stop this at the root. But ultimately, we are in a more dangerous position right now. The guidance hasn't changed. The law hasn't changed. Lawyers now all know. I defy there to be any lawyer who doesn't know right now that there is a conversation about NDAs and that the public are more aware in a way that they were completely ignorant of before. They now have some awareness of maybe an NDA not being good or some awareness of their rights. And I urge anybody who is in a position where they're being asked to sign an NDA or they have signed one to go to our website because it's a great place for resources to help you with those those questions. But currently, all of those, let's say, slightly more unscrupulous lawyers or businesses know that an NDA is a bit of a red flag. So what's happening? They're hiding the confidentiality clauses with under different names, in different places, at different points. And actually it's become a more complex area. Mm. And, you know, I feel it's really key, again, I will say again, that the regulators 
step in because they do have the power to change how solicitors operate. And only they really have that power. The Hearing. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. And we have a brand new email address. So if you would like to drop us a line with your thoughts about the episode, then please do get in touch at thehearingattr.com. The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. To find out more, go to tr.com forward slash the hearing or subscribe via iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.